It's a wonderful time of uh, just being in the Word, uh, in song this morning, and that's always a, a blessing. Uh, thank you, Jordan, for those songs, and I just love the, the sense of oneness that we have when we sing that, because that, those are not just lyrics, not just poet, poems, um, they're actually truths that we sing, which is why they're so precious. Um, it is a privilege and a joy to be able to bring the Word of God to you and minister to you this morning. And I'd like you to take a more active role in this morning. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to pray right now in the quietness of your heart. And I'm just going to ask you to pray for yourself that the Lord would use this Word to speak to your heart directly. I'm going to ask you to pray for me that the Spirit would guard my heart so that I would speak with accuracy and so that I would speak His Word in truth. And I ask that you just do this in the next few moments um, and then we'll continue. Father, your, your word is truth. Set us apart with your truth. Your word is alive. Wake us up with it. Your word is more precious than gold or precious stones. May we value it as such. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. May it cut deep into our hearts to reveal the things about yourself and ourselves to us so that we may be changed. Your word transforms. May it renew our minds. Your word is sweeter than honey. May we get a taste of its goodness so that we may apply it to our lives with eagerness so that we would truly be your people who live the way you want us to live and who walk in a way that shows the world that we are different because you have called us out of the world to worship you. Bless our time together for your glory and we ask all this in the precious and powerful name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Um, as I was uh, preparing for this, I had a dream, um, I think it was Thursday or, I can't remember when, but I had a dream that I was going to preach this sermon in, in my church back in, in India, in Calcutta, and I forgot my transcript, my manuscript, I was like, oh, sweating all over the place. And so I just hope that your prayer is going to guide me through this, though I have the manuscript, I just hope that it is God who speaks. If you have your copy of the, of the Word, please turn there to Ephesians 4. 1 to 6, or you could just read off the slide, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God add his blessing to his word. Some of you may know that I'm in a series called What Christians Pursue, and in this series we have been trying to determine what are the pursuits and the practices and the attitudes of true Christians. Last time, uh, when we looked at this passage, we looked at the unity of the Spirit. One of the main points we discussed was that as Christians, we do not have a I don't want to step on your toes kind of unity so that I don't offend you. That's not the kind of unity that we prescribe to. The unity that we have, rather, is based on the word of God because we don't want to offend God. We don't intend to offend people. That's not what we set out to do. We intend to preach the word in truth, in grace, in love. And if it causes offense, then, well, people are free to take it up with the author of Scripture, who is God himself. We discussed that there are certain biblical principles of unity that we do not want to compromise. And these are those principles. Our investigation was divided into three main sections. We uh, looked at the means to unity. Uh, Where does it come from? What's the source of, of this unity? The motivation for unity. Why should we bother about this unity? The method for achieving this unity, how can we practice it? And the last time we just got through the first one, and this time I'm happy to announce that we will only get through the second. Um, <laughs> I've tried very hard to fit it in, but it just wouldn't. It's just, it's just such, a rich, such a rich passage that uh, I thought that I would really be uh, doing injustice to it. You know, I, I, I want you to just leave this place burping out holiness. You know, it's just so rich. And so I'd just love to uh, dwell on that First, on the second part, which is uh, the, the motivation. But before we do that, we just need to cover off on where we were the last time. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Uh, we discussed a few insights into this verse, uh, which can be summed up very simply. Paul's ex- exhortation, I implore you, is based on the past three chapters. So he's built up a whole lot of rich truth about God and about who he is and about men and the sin that is in them. And so he builds up truth upon truth upon truth. And he says, therefore, I implore you, I beg you, on the basis of God's truth, I'm begging you. What, are he, what is he begging us or his readers about? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, uh, to walk is, to, is, is your daily conduct. You know about that. It's about your lifestyle. Uh, Worthy has a sense of weight. It has a sense of balancing. So uh, walk in a way that balances out your calling. Walk in a way that uh, your conduct should share the same weight as the calling. What's the calling? The calling is an invitation. It's not just a vocation. It's an invitation. What is the invitation to? 2 Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this he called you through our gospel. What did he call you through, uh, for, Paul? That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, this is an invitation to repentance. Clearly, it's an invitation to salvation. Uh, in other words, Paul is, is asking his readers to weigh up their daily conduct 
so that it weighs up against the calling, the weight of the calling to salvation and repentance. Uh, We also know that this is a calling that is uniform, it is universal, it is for everyone. How do we know that? Acts 17.30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So it's a call that is, goes out to everyone um, on the planet. It's a, it's a uniform in, uh, um, invitation that extends across people, extends across time, extends across borders, cultures. Everyone needs to repent. So that is a, is a nutshell, in, in a nutshell, is the means to unity. That is the source because we all have the one calling. It is based on an objective truth. It is based on a universal invitation. Uh, and so um, the means to unity or the source of unity uh, is the calling uh, of God. And it follows then that if God is calling you and me, and he is calling us to the same lifestyle, then it follows that we should be united. Why does it follow? Verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so we come to our point for today, the motivation for unity. The means we saw was the calling with which God calls us. That's the source. The components that enable our response, that's the motivation. And it is sevenfold, the seven reasons, seven motivations that we have to be united. And so let's look at them uh, with the time that we have. First, one body. I love how Charles Hodge explained this. And I quote, This is not an exhortation, but a declaration. The meaning is not, let us be united in one body, or in soul and body, but as the context requires, it's a simple declaration. There is one body, namely one mystical body of Christ. All believers are in Christ. They are all his members. They constitute not many, much less conflicting bodies, but one. We, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, Romans 12:5. unquote. Christian unity is a product of our affiliation to the body of Christ. Another commentator puts it this way, and I just love the vividness of, of this description. Listen to this. I quote, The living members of this body have been called out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. They differ in nationality, color, language, education, training, ability, temperament, and outlook. Through the human blood running in their veins, they have inherited dislikes, prejudices, and animosities that separate them as far as the East is from the West. But, through the blood of the Savior and the baptism of the Spirit, they are united to Christ as living members of His body. Christians are united. Why? Because when you come to Jesus, when you come to the Father through the Son, You don't just come to Jesus, you come to Jesus' family. 
you don't just come to Jesus in isolation. You come to, Je- to the people whom Jesus has saved by his own blood. It's like the old, old saying goes, you, you, don't, you only get to choose your friends, you don't get to choose your family. And it's the same way when God causes you to be born again, you get born again into a spiritual family, you don't get to choose who's in it, you just are thankful that you're in it. That's what it means to be united by affiliation. What is the nature of, of this affiliation? Turn with me to John 17 for a moment, please. Uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 17. I, I, lo- I love this portion of Scripture and I keep coming back to it because it's so foundational to our understanding of, of unity. The Gospel of John chapter 17. John 17, 19 to 21. This is Jesus in, in, in the garden, and you know this. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Who's there? For who's there is the disciples. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's that talking about? That's talking about you and me. That's talking about us at New Community Church who believe in the word of the disciples. That, I just find, that just blows my mind that Jesus was praying for us in the garden. That just blows my mind. What is he praying? What is he praying? That they may all be one. How? What, what sort of oneness is he talking about? Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The, the Son is in the Father, the Father is in the Son, They're completely locked into each other, completely plugged into each other, and that's the sort of unity He wants us to have. Because that's the sort of unity that exists within the Godhead. It's not, it's not that the, the, the Son looks at the Father and says, you know, I, I think we should give, a, give each other some space here. You know, you, you in your corner of eternity and, and I in mine. Wait, let's, let's, let's breathe a bit. no, no, that's, that's not the sort of unity. It's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Proston Theon, face to face. There's a face to faceness about the Godhead that needs to be reflected in His children. If God has saved us, then why would we be any other way than what He is? Christian unity is face to face, it is close up, it is sweet, it is precious. Aloofness does not become Christians because our God is not an aloof God. Our God is a God who has been in a relationship, He loves relationships, He is in a relationship within Himself. If aloofness is not a characteristic of our God, of our Creator, why do we think it would be a characteristic of us? Let's put it this way. Why would you not want to associate with someone who Christ has died for? If Christ has died for someone, if Christ has been crucified on the cross and shed his blood for someone, why would I think that they are beneath me or somehow, you know, they're just not my kind? Or someone will say, you know, but, you know, oh, so-and-so, you know, they're really hard work, man. Really? And you're not? You were dead in sin. 
You were rebels, you were hostile to God, you were dead, you, you had no capacity to please God, and He chooses you, and He loves you, and you think someone else is hard work. Christian fellowship and unity really puts our understanding of the gospel to the test. If God in His grace has chosen us to adopt us into His family, how do we think that we could dare pick and choose whom we want to associate with? You might have the idea that church is the place where your friends are, but actually church is the place where your family is. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Christianity is more about kinship than it is about friendship. We were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1.13. And that's why we are united. That's what unites us. To be, to be motivated to, to unity is to be affiliated to the family of God. One spirit. Most observers uh, agree that this refers to the Holy Spirit. And I want to quote from Charles Hodge again. He says, and I quote, This again does not mean, one spirit does not mean one heart. It is not an exhortation to unanimity of feeling or a declaration that such unanimity exists. One spirit is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. There is no doctrine of scripture more plainly revealed than that the spirit of God dwells in all believers and that his presence is the ultimate ground of their unity as the body of Christ. As the human body is one, pervaded by one soul, so the body of Christ is one because it is pervaded by one and the same spirit. Unquote. Paul puts it like this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Christians are united by the infusion of the Holy Spirit in each believer. Romans 1.16 The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the motivation to respond to the call of God because that is God within us reaching out and enabling us to obey the call of God to us. The Spirit is the guiding agent. Now, there's a lot of talk about the Spirit in our, in our time. You know, there's a lot of talk about the Spirit told me, and the, I was sleeping, the Spirit told me, and the Spirit woke me up, and the Spirit told me to go there. And the Spirit, how do we recognize the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Is it just anyone? Uh, you know, is he just some guy? I mean, there's a book, uh, I think someone went to heaven and they saw the Holy Spirit as a blue fog. Can we, I mean, these are, these are people who profess to be Christian. These are people who expect us to embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we? Who is the Spirit? Jesus tells us. John 16, 30 and 14. But when He, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. If the Spirit that someone is talking about does not end up glorifying Christ, that is not the Spirit. He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. There is only one Spirit, and how can you recognize Him? You can recognize Him because everything He does, 
he glorifies Christ. He calls people not to be uh, as individuals. He calls them to be a body. A body of what? A body of whom the head is Christ. So the motivation to respond to God's invitation is because His Spirit who dwells in us enables us to recognize the invitation and to respond in a right manner. One hope. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. In the same way that there is one body and there is one spirit, in the same way there is also one hope. What does that mean? It means that if God has called you, if you have heard the calling of God, and He has joined you to one body, through one spirit, then it follows that you will also have the same hope which the Spirit gives you. If there is any, if, if we as a body, as a professing body of Christ, claim to have different hopes, then there is something wrong with us. If we've been singing today about songs, about Christ will come again in glory and He's going to, faith will come to sight and all of these things, that's not just a theory. We believe that, I hope. Because if we don't, then we can never be united because if the goal is not, uh, it does not bring unity, then how can we be united right now? Christians are united by anticipation. But let's be clear, this is not, this is not a, a, an anticipation that is wishful thinking. This is, this is anticipation that's a guarantee. This is not crossing our fingers, knocking on wood, no, no, no. This is about confident expectation. We are united by holy living with the assurance that the object of our faith will one day one day, will be made visible. That's what we're hanging out for. One hope in this context means a singular, confident expectancy. Hope is looking forward to something because you are expecting fulfillment, not because you're hoping against hope. Why is this? You need to understand that a hope is not something that you generate yourself. This is the reality that you are hoping for is not a product of your own imagination or your own ingenuity. It is the hope of your calling, which means the, the hope is not generated by the person who receives the call. The, the hope is generated by the one who initiates the call. And it is available only to those who respond to the call in faith and subsequently conduct their lives in a manner that weighs up against that call. The hope is not guaranteed because you will bring it to pass. It is guaranteed because the one who calls you will bring it to pass. For I know, for I know, I love that. For I know, not I think, I feel, maybe, I know who I have believed and I am convinced that He is able He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. 2 Timothy 1.2 It is not the greatness of our faith that gives us this assurance. It is the greatness of our God who gives us that certainty. Romans 8.29.31 For those whom He foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What's the big deal about that? These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is absolute certainty. That is confident expectancy right there. If you have been called, let's let's look at it logically. A is equal to B, B is equal to C, therefore A is equal to C. Right? That's normal math. I mean, I flunked two years of math, but I know that. A is equal to B, B is equal to C, so A is equal to C. Let's look at it this way. If you have been called, then you should be confidently expecting the fruition of your calling. What is the fruition of your calling? Holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness. So if you have been called, and the calling leads to godliness, and if the calling gives you expectancy that is confident, then confidence is linked to godliness. Let's look at it this way. Now little children, abide in Him. Why should we abide in Him? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. He's not saying, if He appears. He's saying, when He appears. It's not if, it's when. There is a confidence that we have that someone is coming, the question is, are we going to be confident about ourselves when he comes? We can put it this way, hope without godliness is wishful thinking, but hope with godliness is confident expectancy. If you are living the life that is in accordance with your call, if you have the joy that is in accordance with your call, if you have the hope and the anticipation and you're doing everything that you can, understanding that it's not you who does anything really, then you will not be ashamed when he comes. Can you produce the godliness by yourself? No. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 13. God chooses... God calls, God sets the standard, God produces the invitation, God provides the motivation, He produces the action, the calling is His, the strength to obey is His. That's why we can be confident that the outcome of our faith is certain. Because it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. So if there is any, I'm not saying we shouldn't doubt, yes, there are times when we doubt our faith. Yes, there are times when we when we fall and we are susceptible to these doubts. But what do we do with the doubts? Do we believe the doubts or we do, do we doubt the doubts? Come back to the Word. The plan is conceived by the Father, achieved by the Son, and then communicated on an ongoing basis by the Spirit. The Father, in, in, in time past, chooses those whom He wants to save. The Son then preserves those whom the Father has chosen by dying for them. And then the Spirit goes out and fetches each one of them and calls those whom the Son has died for and enables them to continue living in a manner that will preserve them to the end. 
And that's why there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, fa- one Lord. Sometimes, you know, we, we, we look at these words and say, yeah, I know what that means. Lord, right? I mean, what's the, what's the problem with that? But sometimes we, because in the interest of trying to get through the passage or just trying to agree with one another, we, we miss uh, the meaning and the depth and the richness of the text. One Lord describes the one who has sovereign, uncontested power and absolute authority, the one who has complete ownership. It is the one who is in charge by virtue of possession and ownership, so we are his possessions, we are his things. He is our Lord and Master, and so we are obliged to respond. Who is this Lord? 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. Even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, Paul's writing to a Greek culture. There's a whole pantheon of gods in there. Even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and we exist from, for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Philippians 2.9-11 God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus, and he is the one who has been given all authority by the Father. The buck stops with Jesus. So the motivation to respond to God's invitation is that this is an invitation from your master. You don't respond because it's cool to respond or, you know, I think, yeah, maybe I'll do that. You respond because you have, you have an obligation. Russell Moore puts it this way, we do not invite Jesus into our lives. We are invited into his. Did you get that? We don't invite Jesus into our lives. He invites us into His. What a privilege. As Christians, we are united because we have an obligation to the same Master. One faith. Now, some people think that this refers to oneness of doctrine. Some people think it's oneness of personal belief. I like how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. I I like to put the responsibility in all these guys. I'm not taking any responsibility for this. But this is what Dr. Jones says. And I quote, It refers to the very essence of the gospel. One faith refers to the very essence of the gospel, that which the apostles were specifically called to preach in their work of evangelism. It is indeed the great message of the gospel concerning salvation or justification by faith only. I suggest that the only possible and satisfactory exposition of this term, one faith, is to say that the apostle is referring to justifying faith. And that this is not only the one faith, it is also the only faith. Unquote. 
So one faith is the doctrine, the principles that we confess to be true. So as Christians, we are united by our confession. The motivation to respond to God's invitation is that there is only one creed to confess. God is not simply the one who initiates the call. God also is the one who determines what a fitting response to that call is. God doesn't just put out the invitation and say, yeah, you can come to me however you want. You come to him how he tells you you should come to him. We come to him by a single confession and that's the motivation to respond because really, there is no other response. One baptism. Is this water baptism? Is it baptism of the Spirit? It's hard to say which one. Some will say it's Baptism of the Spirit, because, you know, when the Spirit baptizes you, that's when you are saved. That's when you come into, into the body. The Spirit baptizes us into the body. 1 Corinthians 12:13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Others might say this is water baptism. Sure, water baptism does not save, but it identifies. It, it, it helps. It's, it's a public declaration that you have been called, that you have made a commitment and so, therefore, you are now going through the waters of baptism to let everyone know that God has saved me. So, I, I'm quite happy to go either way, because whichever way you look at it, one baptism is the method of induction. It's the method by which the Spirit inducts us into the body. Of course, that's not to say that at New Community Church, we will only accept people who have been baptized. No. But if you've been here any length of time, you will know that we encourage people to be baptized in obedience to God's command. So the motivation to respond to God's invitation is because he is inducting you into a special body that is being prepared as a bride for his son. And lastly, one God and Father I'm sure that pretty much every religion on the planet will agree with this. There is one God and Father. Pretty much. Everyone will say, yes, yes, absolutely, oh, yes. Yes, there is, there is, there is one God. Yes, everyone has the same master. We just, we just get to him by different paths. Yes, yes, of course there is one God. We just call him by different names. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name. I, I can't understand how people would twist scripture to think that, yes, I can come to Jesus and I can come to him uh, as one of many gods, perhaps. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the litmus test for whether you know God or not. If you want to test whether you know God, ask yourself, do I know Jesus? What do I mean by that? 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do we know the Spirit of God, John? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There is no spiritually neutral ground. There is no position from, you can, from which you can say, Jesus is one of many ways. 
That's not what John is saying. He's making it clear. If you don't confess Jesus is the only way, you don't belong to God. You may think you belong to God, but actually you belong to the enemy of God. Why am I, why am I making... I, you guys know this, right? But if you... I, I've been reading online um, of, a, um, of a debate in Scotland that one of the... I think he's an Anglican minister. I can't remember his name. He actually said that... And, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not quoting him word for word. But he actually said that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement was horrific. Really? This is an ordained minister who stands up and preaches in a sermon that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for our sins in our place, taking our guilt upon himself as horrific. I praise God for it. But not everyone does. If we don't confess everything about Jesus, not just the name of Jesus, or, uh, yes, he died, but no, that was a political problem. No. We should not be ashamed of the truth, because it is the truth that is the power unto salvation. It is not our truth to tell, it is the truth of God it is the revelation of God. It is the speech of God. There are millions of deities who masquerade as God. But there is only one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is only one point of inception. We have only come from one place. And we need to know who that is. Therein lies the motivation to respond to the invitation because to decline is to reject your Creator. How do you recognize the Father? By the Son. You know the Father if you know the Son. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So there you have the seven motivations of Christian unity. Or put another, in, a, in a different way, there's really no reason for disunity because it's all there. The, the checklist is there. Being a Christian has to do with our affiliation, our infusion, our anticipation, our obligation, our confession, our induction, and our inception. All of these components are singular. One. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. What does it mean? What does it mean to be that they are singular? It means that there's no doubt about them. There's, there's no ambiguity. They're clear. They're obvious. They're explicit. You know, some, some people like to believe that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. What you need is faith. What you have faith in doesn't really matter. Uh, anything goes as long as you have faith. And um, the singularity of these components kind of rejects that view. 
it matters what you believe in. Bear with me as I make an illustration. And we're coming to a close. Suppose I told you that I met U.S. President Barack Obama. And I have the photos to prove it. Hey. And so you say, sure, okay, let's, let's see what you got. And I show you that. I, and you go, hey, sorry, man, that's, that's not Barack Obama. And I say, what do you mean? Have you met him personally? How can you diss my photograph and say that's not Barack Obama if you haven't met him personally? How do you know who that is? I mean, why are you just bagging on me like that? And you say, yes, correct. I haven't met Barack Obama, but I know that that's not Barack Obama because Barack Obama is a black guy and that's just some white dude you're with. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I go away, a bit dejected. But then I come back, really excited in a few days, and I say, you know what? I met him. I've met, I, I, this time I'm sure, I met the guy, and uh, so you say, okay, let's see who, we look, who he is, and I'll I show you that. I said, you said, that's not Barack Obama. I said, but, but he's the black guy, right? You say, yes, that's, that's, he is a black guy, but that's not Barack Obama, because he's too young to be Barack Obama. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. And I walk away a bit dejected. And then I come back and say, guess what? I met the guy. I know the guy. I asked him. I asked him, are you Barack Obama? And he says, yep, I am. This is the guy. Look, old guy, black guy, that's Barack Obama. And, I, and you say, yes, he's old. Yes, he's black. But that's not Barack Obama. And I get really upset. Because you hurt my feelings. You just bagged on everything I said, and you just don't want to. You just want to entertain my idea. You're just so narrow-minded and constricted and bigoted. What's wrong with you, man? Why are you so dogmatic? Who made you the judge of who's Obama or not? And then I might say, you know, if you're going to be like this, we we can't be friends anymore. Because you're just not interested in what I have to say. You're just interested in what you have to say. What do you say to that? How do you respond to that? And I'm asking the question because it's happening everywhere around us. It's happening within the church. It's happening within confessing evangelicals and Protestants. There's so much um, disunity over Christ. Over doctrine. And people get really wound up because, hey, you're not listening to what I have to say. Because what I have to say is important to me. What's the point I'm trying to make? It's very simple. When it comes to identifying a person, my subjective ideas about them are irrelevant. What matters is who they are, not what I think who they are. 
It's important to understand this because when the Bible says there is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, what is it really saying? What does that mean? It means all of these things are related to the person of Christ. If, you want to, if we need to be united, if, 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 if our, um, our goal is to be united, then one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, everything needs to be about Christ. It's talking about a person. It's not talking about an idea. It's not talking about a philosophy. It's not talking about a feeling. It's talking about a person. And people have identities. Our motivation for unity is not trendiness. It's not hipness. It's not philosophy. It's not inclusiveness and racism and marriage equality and, you know, global warming or social justice and the refugee crisis. It's not about any of those things primarily. It's about a person. And you either know that person or you don't. You know, growing up, my mom would ask me to do something or you know, do your homework or do something. And I didn't do it. And, I come, and she'd come back and say, why didn't you do that? And I said, oh, I thought. And she said, no, I didn't ask you to think. Well, you know that. Yeah? Some of the moms use that, right? And you should. Because... Children need to learn obedience. Yes, we should learn to think for ourselves. Yes, we should have a mind of our own. But at the end of the day, authority matters. Can you imagine coming in front of God and saying, but I I thought, no, no, I didn't ask you to think. I asked you to obey. And how dreadful, how dreadful for people who have been sitting in pews year upon year, thinking that they know the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they stand before me, he says, depart from me, you doers of evil, I never knew you. Oh, but I thought, no, 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 you, I didn't ask you to think. Obey. Jesus not who, is not who we think he is. It's who he says he is. Truth is not a matter of personal choice, it's a matter of fact. And if we want the facts about God, we must listen to the Word of God. It's vital. It's vital that we know Christ. Because if you don't, then you're no better than me conjuring up my own image of Barack Obama and being very happy that, oh my gosh, I'm rubbing shoulders with the most powerful man in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm a fool. Because I have no idea. If you think that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe, then let me read to you from John 10, 24 and 31. And we'll close with this. Then the Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus says that what, what you believe makes a huge difference. It's not just enough to believe. Whatever you want to believe, as long as you believe, no, no, no. What you believe is the difference between following Jesus and stoning him. What you believe is the difference between eternal condemnation or eternal life. What you believe is the difference between being a sheep who recognizes the voice of the Lord and a sheep really who will just listen to anyone. May our unity be motivated by knowing the voice of our shepherd so that if we hear anything that, he, that doesn't align with his voice, we would run. Let us know the voice of our shepherd by listening to him and him alone so that we may show ourselves to be real sheep. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we truly find ourselves, when confronted by your majesty and awesomeness, we find ourselves so unworthy, so puny. And Father, yet we would try and match our wits against yours, yet we would try to match our intellect against yours. Father, we just pray that you would give us a spirit of humility that is obedient. Father, that recognizes who you are, not because of what we think, but, what, but because of what you have said. Help us to recognize you in your reality. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth not because of the Jesus that we have constructed in our own imagination, but because of the Jesus who is coming again in glory. And we just pray, Father, that we would live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called, so that when you come in that day, we would have confidence and we would not be ashamed. Father, because you have called us and you have saved us and you have given us the motivation and you have given us the ability, and you have given us the knowledge, and you have done everything. And Lord, so therefore we would say, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless until that day. Father, we just pray that we would worship that God, and him alone, and to him be all the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.